You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week you'll hear from artists, entrepreneurs, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. Spencer Hill started his business development and marketing strategy business called The Portland Company over 12 years ago. So he has a lot of knowledge to share when it comes to developing an online business, having built his own and advised many others. He talks about how he thinks about branching into areas, the importance of creating an overarching strategy for marketing, and how to create valuable online assets for your business. If you're thinking about starting or growing a business with any sort of online presence, this conversation touches on a few of the ways you can go about that. And if you're intrigued by what you hear, talk to Spencer for more information at theportlandcompany.com. Besides that, Spencer's got an interesting side project in building a tiny home, and he has a lot to share about that world as well. I thought it was really interesting. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So what what does what you do... Um, through your business look like specifically because marketing's very broad um so can you like drill down on that a little bit yeah so um i say it's focused on business development and marketing strategy first uh but but what that means is that the first thing that i do with a person is i evaluate their business do they have a viable business are they do they seem like a a business person that is intelligent and uh humble at least humble enough to recognize when they need to make changes to sustain and grow in uh, their business. Um, Once I kind of establish that with somebody, then we begin to talk about the strategy, both of how they grow their business, how they do their business, to the strategy of how they market their business. Um, We kind of already talked about like uh, identifying opportunities and other things like that. And on theportlandcompany.com, when you uh, kind of scroll down the page a little bit, there's a section there that talks about those specific services, and you can kind of compare what the details and nitty-gritty details of those are. But once those things are established, then you start to talk about what we call implementation. Uh, So implementation and, and those types of services, what my staff will do is everything from digital design, so that's designing uh, a website and the pages of a website, to designing a brand material like your logo, your color scheme, the fonts you're gonna use, um, what's called collateral, which would be like your, your letter heads if you have uh, printed on paper or your email signature or your business cards, on and on. When typically digital design is kind of the first implementation step, is in some cases that's already been done for a customer um, or doesn't, doesn't need to be visited too much. And then we start to talk about um, implementing um, uh, tools for business or for marketing the business versus utilizing existing tools that that syndicate your business. So, for example, a website having a website is a tool you own that advertisers use to tell others about your business. Uh, so, uh, we create those kinds of things and assets. Um, social media marketing is something that we do. So. If you have um, a business that uh, would benefit from having a business page on Facebook, which is separate from your website, or a Twitter account where you can um, engage with customers in different ways, or a Yelp listing or whatever, we have services where we'll, we'll create those accounts for you. We'll create the uh, digital media that or the digital graphics that need to be on those accounts. Um, we advise on the content that needs to be on there. Uh, a lot of times it's pretty self-explanatory. It's like your contact information. 
But when you get into um, medium to large businesses, you start to talk about things like uh, how do we um, know what, what type of content are we going to post to these things? Do we need to utilize keywords in these or hashtags or whatever? So we get we give advice about that full suite of things. Um, in addition to social media marketing services, we do paid advertising management. So that would be uh, Google AdWords, which you know, if you're on Google, there's ads on the right and sometimes on the top. That's what uh, we'll go and we'll create those ads. We'll manage them for you. We'll generate uh, monthly and quarterly reports to say, here's how effective this is or isn't. Here's the direction that we think you should go. Um, and then beyond that, although this is not at the forefront of the services that we offer, we're equipped to offer uh, commercial and pr product and lifestyle photography. So if, for example, your target and on your website, you have a slideshow right on the front page that features new products. Well, you don't want just a picture of a chair. You want what's called a lifestyle uh, setting, which is like when you walk into Target uh, and you go down some of their aisles and they have this lamp that's hanging down from the ceiling with a couple of couches and you can kind of sit up there and it's kind of staged. Well, that's that's lifestyle product photography where you're giving people an, an, a vision of what life could be like. So we'll set up... Uh, uh, those things and take those photographs and implement them into your site or brand materials, whatever you're doing. Um, and then uh, on the videography side of things, this is um, a service that we've always offered, but not a service that we've ever really pressed because we're not a film production company uh, foremostly. But um, sometimes customers want to do um, uh, training material videos where they're, tr you know, uh, training their staff or they're, uh, doing an introduction video that they put on their about page or, um, those kinds of things. So, uh, really, and the industry changes on such a regular basis. I mean, at least every year we're adding new services. When I started the Portland company, it was just two services, website design, website development. And by the next year, I think we had probably five services. And the year after that, 10. And now I think we have something like probably like 65 different parent services and numerous child services to those things. Um, yeah. Can you tell me, me how you got started? Yeah. Um, I'm 31, and I started right after I graduated high school. And um, I knew when I was in high school that I was entrepreneurial, um, although my perception of what entrepreneurship was then is very is uh, substantially different than what it is now. Um, I I enjoyed helping people, I enjoyed teaching, and I enjoyed a creative outlet. And I uh, had been had some basic education in graphic design when I got started um, in high school. And I decided that I really enjoyed that and I would like to um, do that as a freelancer because I had made a couple of friends that were at that time making um, what was good money, which was anywhere from 30 to $60 an hour. Most of them were making, you know, uh, closer to $60 an hour. And at that time, minimum wage was like $7.50. So to think that I could make $30 as much as 60 was just like mind-blowing. It was like, man, if I got one hour of work, you know, that's how many hours that it would cost me if I was working over at Taco Time, which is where I worked when I was in high school. So um, 
right out of high school, I took a break, uh, went to the East Coast, stayed with some family, and then came back and started uh, what eventually became the Portland Company. But I started it under a different name called Hook Media. And my concept was that I wanted to hook uh, customers. I wanted to, to, like you'd catch a fish, throw, throw the reel out and bring real people in uh, by, by producing um, uh, quality products. And that was something that really drove me as a business person and still does today, that I hate a bad experience, whether it's a, a, an experience with a physical product or a service, uh, customer service, you know, that sort of thing. And so I uh, asked one of my friends to, to help me operate this company, and I had a loose vision for it. I knew I wanted to create digital media and use it to help people's businesses, but I didn't know exactly how I was going to do that. And I, I went ahead and did a business plan um, as best as I knew how. The internet was still in its very early days, so um, doing research like you can do today back then uh, was the results were a lot far and fewer between. So I did my best with this business plan and I shared it with my dad and I, I shared it with um, <clears throat> one of my mentors at the time and you know, kind of got feedback from these different people to kind of polish it. But in the end, I felt like it really wasn't substantive. And um, as a new business owner, trying to come up with a plan and a vision, particularly the steps involved to execute that vision, um, I found uh, virtually impossible because I neither had the experience to know what steps to account for and I didn't know precisely where I wanted to go. I just knew I didn't want to work for somebody else at minimum wage and have to uh, do that for a year or three years or five years or 10 years so that I could build a savings to go and start my own business or do something else that I really wanted to do. And then a few years went by and, and, and uh, eventually I started another company um, or I re renamed the company to... Uh, I forget what it was. I think I called it uh, uh, Firetree Creative Labs. And I hate that name now, but I loved it then. And the concept was uh, my first project under Hook Media was a website design. And from a friend of mine that his boss needed their, needed a website. And I said, hey, I can design that. So I charged 300 bucks, which was a lot of money for me at the time. And um, I delivered this design. I was very proud. I did it really fast. I felt like I did a really good job. And he, the boss says to me, this is great. Uh, so when's the website going to be done? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> and um, I really didn't, I had no negotiating skills at that time, really, at, at least in that context. And I did not want to embarrass my friend and get him in trouble with his boss. And I didn't want to have them withhold payment from me for the work that I had already done. <clears throat> and so I was like, I'll have that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and so I went uh, went and jumped on the internet and made a couple phone calls to some friends of mine that I knew were, were web programmers. And I built a very basic HTML website and that matched the site design. And they were happy and I finished it and I got paid and I moved on. And it was at that point that um, I didn't realize it then, but within you know a year or so, I realized that there was a pattern that if you were a graphic designer designing websites, people also assumed you were going to or capable of 
coding the website and, and then deploying that. And I saw that as an opportunity. So although I didn't have the skills, I, uh, I knew that there was opportunity and I knew that there was a demand for it. And so I just did whatever I could to locate the resources to execute those things. And then um, by the time I was in business for about three or four years, I was uh, full time. I was making a you know a good, pretty good salary, not enough to like go on vacation, but enough that I had money left over after paying all my bills. And um, I was starting to get job offers from um, other companies that either were marketing firms or needed somebody that assisted with marketing efforts of some kind, usually focused on website development. And um, over the, the first six years of my career or so, um, I took freelance contracts basically everywhere I could. And I made a lot of really valuable connections, people that I still am in touch with today that I still do business with today. Um, and it set me on a really good course. And so by, I think it was year five, I rebranded again to the Portland company. And that was when search engine optimization was starting to become a thing. And um, I decided I wanted a business name that was generic enough that I could say the Portland SEO company or the Portland web development company or whatever. You wanted wanted like an umbrella that you could hold your different things under? Exactly. Being Being entrepreneurial in high school, I knew that the chances that I would start another company were high if I was successful with my first. And that name uh, ended up being very effective for me in that purpose and being able to kind of be liquid in what we did um, and has you know benefited me in other ways since then, particularly for a long time in search results um, because the domain name uh, had Portland in it uh, and the website's front page had terms like SEO. Uh, more or less, suddenly one day I started getting calls for Portland SEO and uh, that was not exactly intentional, um, uh, or, or, or at least intentional in terms of the amount of effort I put into it. Um, and it, it was a pleasant surprise. And that was what kicked me off into um, doing search engine optimization in addition to website development. And those kinds of things eventually rolled into a marketing strategy and uh, implementation. So managing paid advertising campaigns and uh, the whole nine yards. But today, and for the past, I'd say, three years, uh, I've been doing a lot of business development. So I'll have uh, clients that are startups or are young businesses that know they need to grow, know they want to grow, know they need to do marketing, but they don't know exactly what their opportunities are or how to identify what their opportunities are, much less choose from them. And so um, I do business coaching for guys that are starting businesses um, and then uh, heavy, heavily, uh, uh, are, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the strategy, the marketing strategy of things too. So it used to be that a customer would call and say, I want my website optimized or I want a website or whatever. <clears throat> but now, um, and, and you'd, say, you'd say, okay, great, I'll do that. And that was common for marketing firms and agencies of different types. But now uh, what what you see is when people do that, they end up wasting their budget or um, getting distracted doing services that are not really beneficial. Like there was a fad for a while of getting Facebook likes. There was this obsession that if you get Facebook likes, somehow you're gonna get more business. 
And uh, that was not a train that we jumped on, but eventually some bigger agencies uh, produced some reports that proved statistically that there was no correlation between the number of likes that your uh, website or that your business got on Facebook and your conversion rate or your traffic volume or sales revenue. So, um, uh, so in these past few years, you know, when you put strategy first, you say, yeah, you could focus on getting likes on your business page. And there are some cases where that's beneficial, but you also have these other opportunities and, and here's why you should consider these. Here's why you shouldn't do them. And, uh, kind of, uh, on from there. How do you evaluate whether you want to go into a new area or not? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, it breaks down into a few different categories in my mind. Um, there's what's best for the business. There's what's best for our clients, which sometimes is not what's best for the business. Um, at least in terms of uh, having to adjust the business's course and develop infrastructure. Um, and then there's what's best for for the staff, which could be the executive team, could be the, the individual staff members. So um, I have pretty much always prioritized what was best for me last, which was not the best decision in some cases um, because I wanted to always be in a position where I could do what was best for the company. Um, so in terms of deciding what directions to go, you know, I'll, I'll use my very first client as an example. I said, you know, they hired me for graphic design, but they thought they hired me for graphic design and website development. And so what was best for me was to, was to say, we have a contract that states I designed the website for you. It doesn't state that I would code it. You need to pay, you know, that amount. And and then if you would like to employ us for this, then we do that. What was probably best for the business, or what I think was best for the business at that time, was to view it as an investment in marketing. So at that point in time, I didn't do any advertising. I didn't have any budget for advertising because we had just started. Uh, and I decided to say, well. I, you know, if I thought I'd charge $500 more to code this website for them, if, if that was how this had gone, uh, but they're not willing to pay that, then I can either be upset and disappointed that I didn't, you know, put my foot down or didn't communicate clearly or whatever the issue was, uh, and feel like I lost $500. Or I can say, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, invest $500 in marketing, but the way that that's being invested is I'm going to go the extra mile for this client. I'm going to really impress them. I'm going to give them way more than what they uh, maybe deserved or at least what they were really expecting um, or, or I, what I committed to. And then they're going to refer me. And as a result, I'm going to make money from from that. And um, so there's that's an example of doing of how it wasn't best for me. I needed that 500 bucks for my time that went into that, but it was a good decision for the for the company, and it really did pay off. And I can't say that for all the decisions I've made. Um, and then there's what's best for um, our clients, and sometimes uh, you know what a client's needs are are inconsistent with what is best for our company or the current direction that we're taking for our company. 
And so what that means is maybe a customer needs a service that we don't currently offer. And what's best for them is that they stay with one company that offers all those services. But if my company doesn't offer that, then I either have to send them away or I have to figure out how to get that service to them. Um, And so those three things really influence uh, the direction that I go. At this point in my career, presently, I'm heavily motivated by, uh, not by money, but by opportunities that are interesting to me. Um, I don't I don't make a tremendous amount of money, but I do uh, uh, enjoy the work that I'm doing, and I have the flexibility to choose uh, what types of projects I work on, what types of businesses I'm involved in. I'm not at a point where I have to take the first opportunity that comes to me, um, or take opportunities that uh, will guarantee I'm going to get paid for my time right away, or for that matter, paid at all. Um, which was a, a lifetime goal of mine. I wanted to be in a position where I could make decisions that were uh, philanthropic specifically to help other people, even if with my resources, even if uh, it wasn't one that necessarily was immediately sustainable or um, sustainable for me personally at all. So much like flexibility and like so percent of your time reading like about how many hours a week do you work? Um, lately, uh, I'm probably spending about uh, five or six hours a day, five days a week. Um, for the better part of my career, it, it's been <coughs> excuse me, it's been I'll go like two or three weeks where it's where I'm like working four hours a day or less. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm working, uh, 10 or 12 hours a day for, for a few days every other week. And then the rest of the days of the week, I'm working, you know, seven to nine hours. Um, and that's probably six days a week. Um, it's, uh, depends heavily on, um, where I felt my best opportunities were to reach, particularly my personal goals, um, both financially and um, philosophically. What would uh, success look like to you? I want to be able to prioritize my wife and my children and my family and my friends and their needs and what's best for our relationships. So I'd say that summarizes kind of my my personal goals. Um, Of course, there's a lot more specific things in there, but as far as my, my goals in business or the goals of the individual businesses that I'm a part of, um, that varies pretty dramatically. I know in the case of the Portland company, um, our goal has not been to um, scale as much as is possible, but scale to a point that um, uh, everybody involved is full-time and salaried um, and that we have uh, you know adequate savings for the business, that we're investing a certain percentage of our revenue into advertising and, inf- and infrastructure. Um so that we can meet particular goals of, um, like you were talking about earlier, how do you know when you want to add a new service? Well, if a client has a demand, then that's one indicator. Well, if you don't have the money to invest in the infrastructure to provide that resource, you can't do that. So setting aside money for R&D is a critical part of that. Um, For... um, WP Plugin Co., which is one of my other businesses that sells WordPress plugins and will eventually expand into application development as a broader service, 
Um, its goals right now, it's still in a startup phase. And so its goals right now revolve around reaching certain income goals that we can employ customer service staff full time, some things like that. Um, but those businesses are definitely customer centric and streamlining. Where can we streamline the services that we do? Um, in the case of uh, this day and age and internet and internet marketing and internet services, uh, the businesses that are doing the best and are staying in business um, are businesses that uh, focus on application development, developing uh, applications, whether it's uh, in their website or on their phone or on a computer that streamline and automate what they do. And so that's at the heart of the philosophy and the goals of, of those businesses. Yeah. And then, and then uh, what's your third business? Uh, it's a business that my wife started called BrittanyHillBoutique.com. And she started it a few years ago as an Etsy shop. Uh, and it was intended just to be something she could spend a few hours a week doing that um, would uh, give her an activity that she enjoyed, but would pay for itself. Um, we, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we do fine financially, but we're not at the upper tier of our goals uh, financially. And so we didn't feel that uh, it was best that her or I invested our free time in, in hobbies that were particularly expensive. And so we got creative and thought, well, if we did want to do one of these hobbies that was more expensive, how could we pay for it? And uh, that led to the, a conversation about her hobbies and activities and uh, cr crafting, creating things um, in the artistic sense. And that led to realizing, well, if you create these things and you post a picture of it online, you could sell it. And it would justify all the material costs that go into developing that product. And uh, so we just kind of did it just as a hobby, but we had a few rules. Um, she, you know, and we had discussed these things and we agreed on these things. So this wasn't um, either of us, uh, you know, saying it had to be any particular way. But um, we, she, she was only allowed to work four hours a week on it. Um, if there, if the business's needs or the client's needs or demands required more time than that, then she would turn down the business. And then if we decided to scale the business, that 100% of the production would be done and customer service would be done by staff. Meaning that instead of taking 100% of the revenue uh, and you know paying ourselves with it, we would uh, you know pay staff and then take what was at, what was left over. And within like two months or three months, her business exploded compared to what we thought it would be. Um, and we were doing, um, you know, 1500 to $2,000 a month in sales, which was something we were not expecting and not exactly prepared for, um, at least mentally. And, uh, and then right away we decided that the, the rules that we had agreed on and, and laid out were really good. It protected us and we were doing really well with that business and being able to run it and still be parents and married and enjoy life outside of business. And, um, and then since then, uh, you know, the business continued to grow and um, uh, we learned a lot about the Etsy platform and we started a separate website and started uh, developing a business plan that was very detailed and uh, are now in the process of actually selling the business um, so that we can 
uh, create a new company that's uh, kind of an evolution of Brittany Hill Boutique. Um, and so my involvement in that has been on the uh, executive side and focusing on, again, business development and marketing strategy. Her role had been primarily customer service and then uh, when it was necessary to train, tra- uh, locate, hire, and train new staff. And then her staff were responsible for basically running the company outside of that. So um, familiarizing themselves with Etsy and how to interact with customers and how to fulfill orders, both manufacturing them and, or, uh, you know, uh, not manufacturing, but creating them and, um, and delivering those to customers. Huh. That's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are basically like two things I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Like, um, so, so like you talked about owning your, wanting to own your own business because working for other people, have more control over what you're doing. Like that's important. Um, what do you think holds people back from starting their own business? Um, to be honest, I don't think I would phrase, I would phrase that. I would ask that question anymore. Uh, the way I would ask it is what prevents people from people from being successful the way they thought they'd be when they start a small business. When, when I was 18, I thought, the question the way you phrased it why don't people start you know what prevents people from starting a business and uh you know i think it just came down to whether or not that's really what they want um because our at least in oregon the government here is very small business friendly the federal government provides tons of tax write-offs and stuff for small businesses tax credits although i've never been successful in acquiring a grant there's tons of grant programs um, with the internet these days there are so many sites where you can get angel investors you do stuff like flippa.com where you can buy a business that is instantly generating you monthly revenue on and on and on um, so i don't see any reason why people that genuinely want to do it wouldn't do it and i don't just mean like well if you're optimistic then you can do anything but just like really like there's i don't see any reason why people can't do that at least in the united states and definitely in oregon um i think i see a lot of people that start a business and either are unhappy and don't give up when they should or are not as successful and are really just work, making less money working for themselves and, and having to do more of what they don't want to do and doing less of what they do want to do outside of their business. And I think that that's a really critical struggle and a real really critical question for anybody that wants to start a business or is going to start a business is I have a, I'm going to use another analogy. Um, I don't know where I heard this, but um, I heard that the the most successful, the best boxers in history are not the guys that got hit the least or even the guys that knew how to avoid getting hit. They're the guys that knew how to take a hit, Um, the guys that could stay conscious when they're getting pounded on, you know? And I think uh, operating a business is just like that you are going to get wailed on in a variety of ways. You, Some people um, get wailed on financially. Some people get sued. Some people get um, uh, in trouble with 
the relationships that they have when they do in business, as in you know friends and family. Um, some people get in get in trouble um, or get hit in terms of not having the skills and over committing themselves. You know, it comes from a variety of directions, and in my experience, it comes from a lot of directions at the same time. Um, and learning how to be resilient with that in a way that allows you to still enjoy what you do and still make progress in what you do. Um, and, and not just stay focused on what your goals are, but be willing to reevaluate those goals regularly is really important because you can end up um, either failing because you didn't have an exit strategy uh, and never let go of a business or an aspect of your business that is dragging you down or killing you or, you know, whatever. Um, and then, or you can fail in, um, uh, going bankrupt or, you know, whatever, like there's a variety of ways to fail. But like you said earlier, um, it's accepting your failure is so good for your peace of mind. And if you're, the heart of the business that you're operating as in as in if you remove yourself from that company it's not going to sustain itself anymore it's going to collapse uh, which is perfectly normal for a business that's starting up um, or for a hobby-based business um, then um, your mental health your peace your your uh, ability to manage stress and limit stress and those kinds of things is absolutely essential to the health of the business. It affects how fast your business grows. It affects whether or not it grows at all. It affects how and when you make decisions versus, you know, for example, uh, if, you're, if you're particularly calm and rational versus irrational and reactionary in your decision-making process, you know, on and on. Um, so, you know, I think that when people are evaluating, should I start a business or why, why wouldn't I start a business, uh, thinking through that side of things um, that I just mentioned instead of, you know, well, why wouldn't I start a business? I think is a going to set people off on a better, you know, path forward. What do you think distinguishes people who should start their bit, start a business from people who shouldn't? Um, is that even a fair question? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm thinking I, there's someone in particular that comes to my mind. Uh, that I interacted with fairly recently that that's exactly what I thought. This is a person who's not ready to run a business. And it really came down to they overvalued their vision. Um, and I recognized it because I did this. Uh, so this wasn't really a criticism of them as it was um, kind of like, hold it, me looking in the mirror. But, um, uh, and I've seen this with a handful of times with, with business people. But um, when you have a vision for a business, whether it's a product or service or a philosophy, um, it's especially early in that vision, it's easy to believe that's the only opportunity, that's the only way, and you're designed and destined to do that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with believing you're destined for something. And I believe in some cases that that is true. I believe there are certain people that were destined uh, in, in some form to do what they do. But um, if you can't take criticism um, 
and heed to just um, a, a, a good advice or advice that is given to you that you can't refute, um, then you are on a course for failure. And the longer that goes and the more that happens, the harder that failure will be. And it makes me sad because um, when I interact with people like that, um, they tend to react as though um, you don't have faith in them. You don't believe they're going to succeed. It's very personal. Mm -hmm. And... I completely understand what that's like, and I've had probably more people discourage me from any number of decisions I've made relating to my business than I've had encourage me, at least verbally, at least you know in an outspoken way. Um, and I know what it's like, and at a certain point, yes, you absolutely are going to take things personally, and you need to, and you need to be able to let that be fuel to keep you moving on. But there, I think, is a fine line between determination and stubbornness. And uh, I think stubbornness, um, I think with when it comes to determination to do something, determination looks like, what's a good way to describe it? Determination would say, this needs to happen because it's the right thing and nobody else is volunteering to do it. And so I'm going to accept whatever the consequences are and I'm, a, I'm expecting consequences. Where stubbornness says, I don't think there's going to be consequences. I think everybody's wrong and I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. And I have been both. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to think that I haven't been stubborn, but I've been determined. And it's certainly something that I strive for. And I think that it's, you know, when you, if you can recognize that in yourself, or if you do recognize it in other people, you can both be wise for yourself and gentle with others. Because I don't think that there's generally, maybe I shouldn't be so dogmatic about this, but in my mind, as an entrepreneur, all I see is opportunity. The world is up for grabs. And the only reason that that doesn't happen is because you just don't, you choose not to. And um, so I don't think that there's people that are cut out or people that should or shouldn't do business. I just think that given uh, where that person is at in their life at that moment in time and the decisions they're making then will dictate that for that moment in time. So, um, yeah. Okay. okay. I don't want to wrap up without mentioning the tiny house yeah. um can you tell me more about how like he started that project yeah uh when Brittany and i got married well my, my philosophy in business has always been limit uh your obligations um particularly monthly bills because um i when i graduated high school i didn't have a college degree i i was didn't have any real credit i didn't have bad credit i just didn't have any real credit history um, I didn't want to borrow money. Uh, I didn't know how to raise money uh, through, you know, angel investors or any sort of capital investments. I didn't um, have really any money in savings. I mean, I had like a month's worth of rent, you know, and bills kind of set aside, but that was about it. And um, uh, so I knew that if were you, I... Were you living at home? Uh, no, I moved out when I was... 
man, it's been so long. I don't remember. I think I moved out right when I was, uh, I was still 17 because I went to the East coast to live with, um, my sister and, uh, spend the summer out there. And then when I came back, I moved in, uh, I think I stayed with them for a few months and then I moved out right when I turned 18. How'd you get into the tiny house? Yeah, 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 okay. Like minimizing your obligations. Yeah, so... And, yeah, you were talking about like early like early on, like after you had graduated high school, how you kept your, kept your obligations pretty pretty minimal. Yes. And that really saved me in from going out of business a couple, uh, probably three times in my career. And um, not going out of business in terms of... Um, going into debt. A lot of businesses have to liquidate and then they have debt left over when, they, when they're when they sold. I wasn't in that dire of circumstances, but just uh, I was barely making enough at a couple points in my career to pay for uh, just basic, basic bills. And so um, that philosophy really fueled how I made decisions moving forward. So by the time I got married, tiny houses weren't a thing yet, um, but I had the concept, as I'm sure many people did, and I couldn't figure out if it was legal or not. I think that's why I didn't do it at that time. But when my wife and I got married, we were renting a house. It was like, this is stupid. Why do we rent to our two people and we have this like, you know, 2,000 square foot house? Like, we don't need this. And um, so we moved to an apartment in a neighborhood called Villabois in uh, Wilsonville here in Oregon and uh, lived there for a long time. And... Uh, Every year, uh, rent went up, and I really didn't want to get a mortgage because I was uh, one of my life goals was by the time I was 30, I wanted to have saved $150,000 and bought this particular house that I had in mind. Um, but what I found as time went on, and this was a big part of why I uh, wish I had been in a position where college would have been, I would have been able to learn uh, in a college setting. What I found was every year my rent was increasing by at least 10%. And um, the value of that property was increasing by, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30%. So again, you know, my goal was 150,000 by the time I'm 30, I'm 31 now. And that same house is $375,000 or something. So even if I had saved that 150000 I would never have, have reached that goal. And uh, that was really, you know, that was just a mistake for me. And it was a mistake because I wasn't educated. And, um, and that was something that I really wish I'd had. But it left me in a position where um, over the last four, three or four years, I kept thinking, how could I get hold of, of, of property, of a house that I own so that the two or $3,000 a month I spend on just living in this place could go towards advertising for one of my businesses or investing in somebody else's business to generate a return or whatever. And um, then I started to become really serious about the tiny house. And for probably a year, we were drawing up plans and watching all the YouTube videos and and asking people, asking around until we made friends with people that either did RV lifestyles or built and lived in tiny homes, and it just we just realized that um, it was a very real possibility for us. And um, I I won't go into all the details, but I have a, 
uh, amateur background in construction and, and um, you know, framing and just general carpentry. So I felt I was capable of building it on my own as opposed to hiring somebody to, to do the whole thing. And um, then about, I think it's about six months ago now, um, my wife and I decided to pull the trigger. And there was a series of events that led to that. It's a story for another time, but um, we decided to pull the trigger and it basically came down to, this is something we've thought about doing for a long time and we know uh, because it's consistent with our philosophy of limiting our obligations that we have every we have plenty of evidence to support the idea that if we could eliminate these expenses and uh, temporarily divert it to uh, constructing a tiny home, then um, we would really set ourselves, guarantee a better future for us as a result. Um, because uh, we're a family of six, so I've got four kids, and I have two dogs. They're large dogs, and one's a husky. And if you've ever owned a husky, you know that huskies are not the type of dog you can just leave off the leash to just hang around you. Uh, they like to bolt. And although I, like, I, I pride myself in, I think, a very well-behaved and loyal husky, uh, the idea of going to uh, campgrounds for any period of time um, and living in a tiny house that this first version is 16 feet long uh, is basically crazy. So 16 feet by, by 8 feet. So it's, I'm still terrible at math. So whatever that works out to, it's like 150, 100, 200 square feet or something. It's not a lot. No, no. I'm pretty sure it's under 300. Yeah. So um, to do that is, is, crazy is nuts uh, in terms of how to make that work logistically but um, the gain that we get from that lifestyle not just financially but being able to travel the country which we've already gotten to do some of that um, incorporate that with our children's education the fact that it um, makes it so we literally never have to be concerned about paying any bills because apart from that we basically have none um, it allows us to focus on our marriage focus on our, our children and our children's education, um, you know, keeps us aligned with those goals we talked about earlier. The, uh, the catch has been uh, that when we moved out, we, we planned the first six weeks of our trip without a tiny house to kind of let ourselves settle from moving out and uh, catch up on a variety of life events that were going on at that time and um, travel the West Coast. And we were successful in doing that and had a great time and learned uh, some things that we wanted to do better when we go out again. But when we came back, we had planned on uh, beginning construction on the tiny house in, in the first of a series of phases. And um, during that time, uh, it was really, we figured about two weeks is what it would take to construct this first version. And... Um, during that time, I was sitting in the loft of the tiny house and I was kind of like looking around, just kind of evaluating some things. Yeah. How tall is a tiny house, by the way? This uh, tiny homes, they vary in size a little bit from from about 10 feet to about 13 and a half feet. Um, the legal limit in most states is, is uh, 13 and a half feet, um, but it's better from what I've discovered, it's better to be under 12 and a half feet um, because... Uh, older bridges were 12 and a half feet. So if you're on like an interstate, you can expect that there are 14 and a half feet. So 13 and a half feet gives you a foot of clearance. So ours is 12 and a half. 
um, which I, I probably, it's actually like 12 and four inches or something, but so yeah, the, the ours has a slanted roof. So one side is higher than the other, but, um, it's like 10 feet from the ground on one side and 12 and a half feet on, on the other. Is it like like a portable house? house? Yes. Yes. So a tiny house, if, if your listeners are they always portable? No, actually, which I didn't know. Um, uh, I guess the term tiny house, um, is popularly associated with a tiny house on wheels. Uh, but, uh, I, in, uh, certain countries and certain regions of the U S like Alaska, tiny house actually refers to a house, a tiny, same size, tiny house, but it's just not on wheels. It's on an actual foundation. Where are you going to find find places to park it? So, uh, we opted for a thousand trails membership. Um, we, however, uh, on our road trip without the tiny house, one of the things we evaluated was, um, state and national parks or not uh, parks, but uh, forests. And, um, what's cool about state and national forests is on the federal level, it varies a little bit from state to state, but on the federal level, um, you can park, uh, and camp anywhere you want, as long as it's not within, I think a hundred yards of an actual state campground. And, um, another, to go along with the, um, limiting your expenses lifestyle, um, living sustainably is, is consistent with that. So solar panel, um, getting your own water from fresh water sources, um, some things along those lines. So, um, for me, I love me and my wife, we both love camping, but, um, what we don't like about campgrounds is, um, particularly if you have dogs or kids that are loud, it can cause problems with neighbors and things like that. And, um, and you're restricted to a confined space. So when we went on our first six week road trip, we went and explored a bunch of places that were state and national forests to decide whether or not we felt, uh, that that was something we'd be interested in continuing to do, um, opposed to campgrounds. And we loved it. And we found tons of really awesome places. The best experiences we had were at the places that were not in um, any of these uh, state or um, uh, national campgrounds. And my, one of my favorite experiences on our trip was we were coming into uh, Utah and uh, through the southern border, and we passed. Um, my, my youngest son, Liam, started crying, and he just was ready to get out of the car. And it was sunset, and we're driving through this area where you have these, you know, these Grand Canyon-style... Um, plateaus and then the rest is this kind of valley and it gets this uh this brush these bushes uh and this really clay like mud it's just for me it's a very beautiful uh setting and so we pulled over to get out and we just just pretty much immediately pulled over we didn't put any thought where we were pulling over and there was this entrance to uh what we thought was someone's property and when we pulled up to we realized it was a national uh, forest. And uh, so we got out and there's probably 15 horses there. And when we pulled up, I thought it was someone's property and these were their horses. But uh, I'm around horses fairly often and it was clear that they didn't have, they weren't shooed. They had never been shooed from what I could tell. They didn't have any brands on them. They looked a little mangy in terms of like tufts of hair. They were wild horses. This was a pack of, uh, or a, a herd of wild horses. And I'm standing out there in, in, you know, in the middle of Utah, which is this particular region was very remote. And I'm there with my kids and 
just getting to see these majestic animals, wild. I'd never, I'd seen wild horses, but not up close. And to be in this herd of them was just amazing. And that night we ended up camping there and uh, it was awesome. It was so cool. And in the middle of the night, one of the horses came up and started sniffing outside our tent, <laughs> which was a li- spooked us at first a little bit. But when we realized what was going on, it was really cool. And so those are the kinds of experiences that you don't get when you're in state campgrounds or, or you know, other places like that. But um, we'll do that for a while. We, we have a variety of spots we want to hit um, up and down the, the East Coast and uh, the southern part of the United States. And then when we get back into town, which will probably be, we'll probably do that for about uh, at least three months. Uh, but we've really got about six to nine months of activities that, that we could, uh, you know, fill up. Um, but that's going to be the leading kind of thing that we do. Thousand Trails is more of, more or less a backup for when we um, feel like we need a little sanity. And then uh, we have friends and family everywhere from uh, Washington, um, uh, nor- northern Washington, all the way down through California, all the way through New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, uh, up and down the East Coast. So we'll be parking and staying with a lot of those friends and family. Um, and then after this period of time, uh, we believe that we'll have the means to purchase a piece of property uh, in there's a few regions that we're looking at, but um, where we can kind of plant that permanently. And uh, I'm actually working on getting my contractors, electricians, and plumbers license so that I can um, build and sell tiny homes, um, not as a business like the Portland Company and and the Plug-in Company, uh, which are long-term, you know, businesses. I'm going to be learning, uh, you know, things as I go, as I build these. And, um, we, one of the things we would like to do is, uh, or one of the, the ideas we're entertaining is building these structures, um, selling them at a very inexpensive uh, price compared to what you see on HGTV, uh, to specifically help young families, um, or struggling families get out of debt, get out from under a mortgage and start investing that money, uh, so that they can pay cash for the things that they own, especially their most critical, um, you know, asset, which is their home. Um, but that's uh, that's on the very fringe of something that we've been entertaining and just decided that we were going to step forward, the first step. And uh, you know, in a year from now or six months from now, we may find that that's not exactly the route we want to go, but it's an idea that we're entertaining. Cool, cool. And then I haven't really been able to get this question out of my mind. Do tiny houses have plumbing? It depends. Uh, ours will. Um, we'll have... Uh, How's that, that work with like septic and septic? Do you treat it like a travel trailer kind of thing? So again, that, that depends too. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people do it, but uh, state laws usually require that you uh, have what's called gray water and black water tanks. So gray water is like shower and sink water. Black water would be stuff from your toilet and stuff. Um we will have a composting toilet. So um, composting toilets separate the liquid from the solid and make it uh, so you can put in anything from specific uh, chemicals to natural products that cause it to break down and turn into compost. Um, urine is naturally sterile, so um, there are laws about where you can dump it and pour it and that kind of stuff. But in general, you can um, you have uh, places that those can be dumped. Uh, if it's uh, composted to the state and federal standards, then you can dump uh, the solids anywhere. Um, and by anywhere, I mean 
not in the middle of the street or something like that, but in an appropriate, uh, if you're in the forest, you're not there. Yeah. Is the smell an issue with those? Uh, if you get a good composting toilet, no. Um, and, and you follow the best practices. Um, so that's where chemicals or things like, um, and, and I don't have firsthand experience with this. So I'm still learning about this particular process. But from what I've read, um, if you do things like straw, they there's some weird things out there like uh, red worms mixed with, uh, I think, a peat moss um, cause it to break down so that there's no smell. Um, uh, but there are, there's a variety of different systems out there and some of them, the way that you know it's time to empty it is when it does smell others, there is no smell, but anyway, with, with, we're going to be doing a compost system. So we won't have a black, we won't need or have a black water tank. Um, we will have a, a gray water tank, but I'm hoping that we'll be legally allowed to bypass it as long as we use, um, uh, uh, organic biodegradable products. So for example, when I brush my teeth, I use a, uh, coconut charcoal. Um, and it's, uh, hundred percent natural. It's just charcoal that, or it's just coconut that was, um, uh, you know, cooked until it turned into charcoal. And, uh, so that type of product you can wash down a drain and it's fine. It's not going to harm the atmosphere in small quantities. Um, and we do the same thing with our kids, right. With soaps and things like that. But, um, but understandably, uh, state and federal uh, laws are very strict about those things. They want to protect our state and national forests, which we're very supportive of. And uh, so we'll have a gray water tank that routes, um, that's at least available if we need to route our uh, liquids, you know, through there. Um, yeah. And then are you, you're like homeschooling your kids, I assume? Yeah. Or? Wilsonville, Oregon is definitely our home. And uh, hopefully before the end of this year, we'll have an apartment that we're renting in the neighborhood that we've kind of lived in forever and ever um, as kind of a fallback place when we're kind of fatigued from tiny house lifestyle or traveling or whatever. Um, And also an office space uh, for me to do kind of my work in peace and quiet. Um, uh, But uh, yeah, so if we do ever put the kids in public school, it'll be in the Wilsonville area most likely. Thanks for your time, Spencer. Yeah. Thanks again, Spencer, for making the time. After we had recorded this conversation, Spencer gave me a lot of helpful feedback, both for my website and for growing this podcast. So if you're looking for help with marketing and business strategy, be sure to check out The Portland Company at theportlandcompany.com. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, whose music has been scientifically proven to increase the likelihood of a solar eclipse. Give a listen to both their albums, The Sun and The Moon, this coming Monday morning, August 21st, and you'll see what I mean. You can find them on Facebook under Cambrian Explosion PDX, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. To get more episodes, just hit subscribe in whatever podcast app you use, or go to nicholaspeel.com, where you can get more subscribe buttons or stream episodes directly in your browser. For more information about new episodes and guests, you can also go to the Facebook page Why Try the Podcast and join Why Try the Focus Group. I'll periodically submit requests for guest ideas, interview questions, and feedback about how I can make this podcast better for listeners. So it's a great way to get engaged and help improve why try. Thanks for listening.